0: Well, I'm going to uh, take an aside this evening uh, because of a comment or really question, question comment uh, from last week. I had made a little mention, maybe it was two weeks ago, about God uh, rejecting the fasts that Israel had put into her calendar. And the comment was, well, they're not recording God's Word, so how can God reject what isn't recorded His Word? Well, they are recorded, and I want to just take an aside to that to tell you that they are there. Uh, they were there during the captivity of Israel for the 70 years they were in captivity, and some of them persisted even after that. And they really were then... Later overshadowed by the return of Zerubbabel and the Nehemiah to uh, Jerusalem to rebuild her. But let's go to Zechariah. I just want to back this up a little bit with God's word. I think it'll be beneficial. uh, Because I said there's only one day in the calendar that is a day of mourning. A day, and that's mourning our sin, and that's the day of atonement. There's only one day in the calendar that you are required as a people to afflict your souls. Uh, there's no other day of national uh, mourning or uh, uh, memorializing those kinds of events. They're always uh, celebrating the provision of God uh, in their national calendar. And that's going to be true of the next two things we're going to be studying as well tonight and next, or two weeks from tonight. And the reason uh, I think that's really important is we tend to want to say, well, we're going to memorialize this because we don't want to ever remember this bad thing that happened. Uh, and that's not God's strategy. That's really not what salvation is all about. Our relationship with God is not about memorializing sin and violence and evil. It's, and even his own judgment, that we don't memorialize that because we recognize that his judgment is always in response to our sin. And we don't want to remember that because once we have a right relation with God, he separates us from our sin, which is what the Day of Atonement is all about, right? Is to remind ourselves that we are separated from our sin through the wonderful work in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to have other dates in our calendar to memorialize those kinds of things. And, and I would just challenge you that we do that. And so we should be celebrating Uh, When we celebrate great men in our history, we don't celebrate the day of their death. We don't celebrate Lincoln's death, his assassination, right? How do we celebrate him? We celebrate his birth that he came in. And so saying that Washington, uh, uh, is Martin Luther King Day, is that also his birth, right? It's not the day he was assassinated. We don't celebrate the evil of men, the wickedness of men, we should be celebrating rather the provision of God, the blessings. And therefore, the idea of a national fasting, it's not that it's can't be called for, for certainly there were occasions in Israel's history where they called for a national fast. And in fact, the prophets tell them to do that. You should be fasting, you should be on your knees, you should be repenting, you should be turning from your wicked ways. And and that's certainly a call that can go out on occasions, but they are not memorialized. That is, they are not institutionalized every year that you should do this on this day. Uh, God never does that. Fasting is a responsive activity to something going on in either the individual, family, church, or larger society's circumstances to cause. And that's going to come into this Study tonight. That's why I want to weave this in, is because the book of Esther regarding the celebration of Purim is really talking a lot extensively about the whole idea of having a national fast as a people uh, with response or or with concern over a, a particular event, but yet the celebration of that does not involve fasting, and or should not, um, because that threat is not imminent. It's not like it was. We are celebrating the deliverance, not the fasting. And so I don't see in God's word, in fact, what I see the opposite of is God rejects fasting uh, on, a, on a cyclical calendar kind of fasting. But Israel was doing it. So let's go to Zechariah chapter 7 and 8. And really chapter 7 verse 1 really is a uh, communication from the Lord that goes all the way through chapter through chapter 18 and uh, we're not going to read all of it but we're going to read the beginning and then towards the end we're going to correlate it to some events in Israel's history and why we don't commemorate those today, why they didn't persist in the Jewish calendar or should not have persisted. I think one at least did and a lot of people lost track of why they do this um, but they do have one that I think persisted. It says in verse 1, Now in the fourth year of the king Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Chislev. When the people sent Sherezer with Ragam Amalek and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Uh, so they come and say, should we keep fasting? Because we've been fasting for all these years on this occasion. And of course, this occasion was uh, the, uh, marking a certain event, and we're going to talk about that. And so this is the ninth month, which takes us probably into December, uh, November, December, is what we're looking at for the Hebrew calendar. So verse 5 is the answer from God. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Should you not have obeyed the words the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous in the south and the lowland were inhabited? And so uh, we have this challenge Have you been fasting for these last 70 years? So this is a practice Israel put into their calendar for 70 years. Well, what was going on for 70 years? They were in exile. Now they're coming back into the people. and They say, should we continue doing this fast? He basically says, I never told you to do those fasts. You chose to do those. Let's pick up at the end of this commentary from from the Lord with response to this. Go to chapter 8, verse 18. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts: the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah, where love, therefore love, truth, and peace. And so we have this transition. So here are these four fasts. We have four fasts listed here that Israel is practicing for 70 years. And I just want to go through it. I have my old Bible here because I have their old notes. So I always, whenever people ask me questions, I don't use my new Bible. I use my old Bible. (laughs) Oh, let me look it up in here and I'll, I probably have something written. I haven't transferred those notes as thoroughly. It takes like 40 years to do that. 30 years to transfer to a new Bible. So it says here, the fast of the fourth month. The fourth month is when the walls of Jerusalem were breached. Historically. That happened the fourth month of the Hebrew calendar. And the fast of the fifth month was when the temple was destroyed. They're marking these events through fast. The fast of the seventh month was the murder of Gedaliah. And so we have another historical major event in the judgment on Israel and the things that they endured during the fall of Jerusalem. And so that was a fast marking that event. And then you have the fast of the 10th month, which is what being asked about here. The 9th or 10th month, 10th month. It was the 9th month. though. No, it was asked, should I pray? before?" Yeah, he's asking them in the 9th month if he has to do it on the 5th month. So the 5th month was about the temple being destroyed. And so we're in the midst of that. Do I have to still celebrate the temple destruction now that the temple's been rebuilt kind of thing? But the fast of the 10th month, was the beginning of the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, the final siege. So they're having these four fasts that they've been doing every year. Why? To commemorate acts of God's judgment on the, tem- on the walls of Jerusalem being breached, on the fall of the temple, on the murder of one of their leaders, and of the siege of Nebuchadnezzar being initiated on Jerusalem. So they've got these inserted into their national calendar. And they've been practicing for 70 years, which means you have a generation that has come upon the scene that have been celebrating this their entire life. And they have overshadowed what God has told them to commemorate. God says you commemorate the Passover. God says you commemorate the Feast of of weeks uh, of Pentecost. You commemorate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You commemorate my provision, my provision, my provision. I only call for one day out of the year to afflict your souls, the Day of Atonement. The rest are all gatherings and celebrations and feasts. They are all feasts. You have chosen to make national fast part of your national agenda i did not require those i did not tell you to do those you did those and what's the problem with that the problem with that is it diminishes the purpose of this afflicting of the soul through fasting that fasting is a response of a repentant heart not a date on a calendar now do we have something similar to that institutionalized in calendars today Have you ever heard of something called Lent? Okay, what is Lent? Okay, it is I'm going to give up something for this time period and and I'm going to basically bring this affliction on myself. It is a kind of fast. I'm going to give something up in preparation for this. And then, uh, so they have these days. And so you have Mardi Gras. What happens after Mardi Gras? You have... Do you know this horror, this very sad day where no one's allowed to be happy at all in preparation for the most wondrous celebration of all? Well, we have, we have brought in this concept of fasting. Granted, it, it's on a lesser degree, but we celebrate and feast on a lesser degree as well. Um, but we have this idea that somehow God, this is, is pleasing to God. Well, is it really a spiritual act in response of a heart of repentance to an imminent judgment of God because of my sin. That's what the fasts were really supposed to be for. When God says you should be fasting and on your knees and weeping and mourning because of your sin to prevent this from happening. You should have done this prior and now you're doing it after the fact. And he says, I didn't call for it. It's not something I'm happy with. And uh, you do it, but you didn't do it for me. You didn't do it with a broken heart before me. You did it in a broken heart for yourselves because you're in captivity. And that's the difference. Are you sorry for the sin or are you sorry for the consequences? Now, we all know the difference between those, right? Most of the time when you discipline your children, are they crying because of their sin or are they crying because of the consequence? Usually it's the consequence. Nine times out of ten probably or more, Um, It's for the consequence that they cry. They're crying for themselves because I have to stay in a corner because I have a sore bottom because uh, I didn't get to eat supper. Whatever the consequence was, they're crying about their suffering. (laughs) They're not crying for their sin. I am so sorry for this sin act. And that's when they should be crying before they're punished. And it might have eased their punishment. It might have even avoided it but they don't cry then because they're not sorry for their sin. They're sorry for the consequence, And that's what these fasts were all about. They were introduced in the Hebrew calendar. And it wasn't really the Hebrew calendar, it was the Jewish calendar. We're going to talk about, a lot about that tonight too. So I just want to share with that with you because I just mentioned it offhand and I didn't back that up or support that and I wanted to do that. And it introduces a couple of concepts that tie into what we are going to study tonight, which is the Feast of Purim. And so we're going to be looking at that out of the book of Esther. Because that is an addition celebration in the Jewish calendar. It's the next addition outside of the law. The law mandated uh, these celebrations, these feasts, and the Day of Atonement. And now we're going to look at the one that has biblical support for its celebration. Okay, any questions on that portion of Zechariah uh, and God's dismissal of them? You should have been just doing right. You should have been treating people better. Uh, And that's going to be shown out in the Feast of Purim. Which is interesting, in what setting was the Feast of Purim instituted? During the captivity. During those 70 years of captivity is when the context is of our uh, account here in the book of Esther tonight. And so, well, they're out there celebrating, not really celebrating, they're memorializing what the consequences of their sin with these four fasts, God is still at work in their midst and they're just not even recognizing it. We got the ministry of men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We've got their ministries going on. We have the interventions of the book of Esther. God is not failing to work. He is uh, sending them letters to the prophet. Prophet Jeremiah sends them letters uh, they're having all this engagement. God is not silent during those 70 years. If anything, the silent period is much later, prior to the birth of John the Baptist. As the word of the Lord was rare. And so when we see this time period, it's actually a full time period of prophecy. You have prophets in Israel who are writing to the exiles. We have the prophetic activity of Daniel. We have Nebuchadnezzar himself having those years out there eating grass like an ox. And all the activity there, protecting the people of Israel. Uh, We have God very active, but instead of celebrating God's activity, they're over there going, Poor, us! so the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. The temple's destroyed. Uh, And God doesn't ever call you to that. Don't remind you. God doesn't put forward reminders over and over again of your past Failings and his judgment, rather of your obedience and his provision. So let's look at Esther. You all know the story of Esther. We don't need to uh, go through that extensively. Uh, we know that it ended really well for the <laughs> for the Israelites and really for the heat for the, for the Jews. and and Jews is different than Hebrews. I like to use the word the Hebrew people. The Israelites, I use those predominantly because they are inclusive of all 12 tribes. When you talk about the Hebrews and the Israelites, you're talking about all 12 tribes. When you use the word Jews, you're only referring to the tribe of Judah. Okay, so that's the difference between those three terms. When you're talking about the Jews, you're talking about the tribe of Judah. So we're not talking about the destruction of all of Israel because the northern ten tribes were carried into captivity by the Assyrians and they were scattered throughout and have only been regathered really in our time, in my lifetime that's happening. And so they were scattered in various places uh, up into Russia. Most of your Russian uh, people aren't really Jews. They're really Israelites. And there are some Jews up there, but they're Israelites Scattered throughout down into Africa, and that's why you have African, you have Indian, you have Filipino Israelites that are gathered in from all over the place because of the 12 tribes, not just one tribe. But when you say the word Jews, you're really referring to Judaism, is the tribe of Judah, and uh, it has become to grow to mean other tribal Israelite tribes, but specifically it's the tribe of Judah, and this is really referencing. The Jews, the, the God's deliverance of the tribe of Judah during her captivity. And by this point, we're late in the captivity, aren't we? Because we're into the period of the Persians. So we're through the Babylonian period and we're into the, the Medes and Persians. And so let's look at this. And we know the the privilege they had of defending themselves, and the death of Haman and his sons on the gallows that he built for. Mordecai and his people, the Jews. And we come to chapter 9 of Esther, verse 18, and we find uh, this further instruction. The Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th day, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the fourteenth day of the month Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the fourteenth and fifteenth days of the month Adar. As the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them, and had cast purr, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king and commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. So they called those days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter, and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants, and all who had joined them, that without fail... They should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instruction and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. We're going to stop right there. So to uh, summarize here, we have two-day celebration. It's two days, and, and the first day is for the outlying areas. The second day is to, for the Susa itself. And why is it two days? And maybe you've lost track of this a little bit in the story of Essert. As you recall, there is by lot, by Purim, by the casting of a lot, they decided what day it was that, that Haman would take his revenge out on Mordecai and the Jewish people throughout the whole empire. And so that day was determined by Lot. And, and so that's, Purim is actually kind of an interesting, to call the holiday by the, by the activity of your enemy. The enemy cast the Lot, and Lot fell on this date, Uh, But God gave the deliverance. It's kind of a Joseph thing. What you meant for evil, God worked for good. Okay? And so it's kind of one of those kind of events. Uh, The day that the uh, brothers came and bowed down to him uh, according to the the dream that he had. And so we have this date. Well, the date was set and Israel was allowed to defend themselves and had a great victory over the whole empire. But Queen Esther asked for an extra day in Susa, the citadel, because apparently there was still this animosity and this group of people that were very committed to Haman and his plan who were not dealt with the first day. This is not true of the outlying villages who were not under the direct influence of Haman. Haman had that much influence in Susa. And so Esther goes and asks for an extra day in Susa so all the rest of the Jews and all the Empire were resting the next day except for the Jews in Susa who were still organized in defensive battle lines against Haman's followers who were still going to try to implement the plan because the plan was written by the Medes and Persians and could not be changed and so they still had the authority to do that. And so the Jews exercised their authority by Queen Esther and by King Hasworth's command to continue defending themselves. And they had further bloodshed that day. And so they didn't get to rest till the following day. So the 13th day, we're not celebrating. That's the defensive day for everybody. The 14th day, the outlying areas had rest and they could celebrate their victory. But the people in Susa couldn't celebrate their victory on the 14th day. They still defend themselves against further attacks. And so then they rested and had a victory celebration the 15th day. And that's why Purim became the two-day celebration. Because we're celebrating one for the outlying areas that got to have their victory celebration. And then the Citadel people had their victory celebration. And so that's why we have two-day celebrations of celebration so it was the 14th and 15th day of celebration so the country people got celebrated and the city people got celebrated citadel people uh, we didn't want to miss out on either one of those they are both victory parties but we're, we're celebrating a complete victory well the complete victory on the 14th celebrated what happened on the 13th complete the victory on the 15th celebrated the finishing of it in the citadel the 14th so we have this opportunity to celebrate this. This is at the culmination of a lot of prayer and fasting. In your, in your copy of God's Word, you don't have the record of the prayers. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation, we do have those recorded for us. And we went through that study a long time ago of why they're absent from this and is really uh, because of uh, some of the Jewish translators and preservers. Uh, and that's why we, I prefer the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. It's what Jesus used, what the disciples used, what Paul used. It's what all of them used with the Septuagint. Um, and it would include the prayers of Mordecai and the prayer of Esther. So fasting and prayers were a big part of the workup to this event. But we don't celebrate those because they were occasional. They were in response to this threat. And so we're going to fast and we're going to pray for the Lord. This is what Hezekiah did when he was under attack. And God delivered him, right? So when he got the word of the Lord saying, you're going to be judged. And he fasted. He prayed. He tore his clothes. He, he, he laid himself out before the Lord. And God forgave him. And yet there was a consequence that was going to be delayed. And so he wouldn't see it in, during his reign. And so uh, that's the, the response that has to happen. We don't, we don't institutionalize that. We institutionalize the, the God providing to answer the prayer. And so that's what the Feast of Purim is. So when is this? Well, this, this is the last month of the Jewish calendar. And so that would land... Uh, before the right in our calendar it would land again in late winter early spring so it, it would be in our calendar we would think well that's the first event of the Jewish calendar is Purim because it's like February or March somewhere in there and of course Passover is in March April somewhere in there right and so but that's not true because this is the end of the Jewish calendar the, the month Adar. And remember, Chislev, Adar, all these names are actually Babylonian month names. They are not Hebrew month names. The Hebrew months, we have one month named, and then all the rest are numbered. So we know the first month, and then it's, which is named, and then we have second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth. So you have them numbered all right, these are mostly Babylonian month names that we are given here which makes sense because we are in Babylon Persia that region right we're in captivity so when Daniel uses those month names when Esther uses those month names when Nehemiah uses those they're in captivity and they have adopted the names of the month that we know are essentially Babylonian and Persian borrowed those so uh, if someone says these are the Jewish month names, that's really not true before the Babylonian captivity. They, they didn't, it was the first, second, so kind of like the days of the, of, the, of the week, right? It's the first day, the second day, the third day, there's, there's Sabbath. Seventh day is the Sabbath. You know, we call the day, but they just called them first, second, third, fourth. They didn't have other names. Those were adopted from other places. So we have the celebration. It's going to be at the end of their calendar year um, and well how is it going to be celebrated what it lists for us and it is it is uh, remember in God's word it always says not only do you celebrate this but here's why you celebrate and here's how you celebrate it those are all important to God and so we can't divorce what we are celebrating from how we celebrate it I think we've done that in large measure. We allowed the world dictate how we celebrate things. And this is how things like bunnies, chocolate, and eat eggs get into a celebration of Christ's resurrection. This is how uh, Santa Claus and trees and, and frosty a snowman gets into our celebration of the Lord's birth. This is how these things transpire is because we aren't careful in how we do it and, and now we find we're not even very careful about when we do it, although we're going to substantiate December 25th, but now Jesus' birthday. Because we already know that that happened when? September 11th, 3 B.C., between 6 and 7 30 in the evening. So we already know that, and so um, but we want to be careful doing what we should, how do we celebrate this? And of course, God stipulates it. Day of Atonement, here's what you're supposed to be doing. Anyone that doesn't do these things, cast them out. Feast of booze, here's what you're going to be doing. Boom, boom, boom. You're going to go out and you're going to live in a booth. You're going to you have friends. You're going to do these sacrifices. And so all sacrifices are stipulated, what you're going to do. Feast of unleavened bread, you're going to eat nothing but unleavened bread for that whole period of time, for those eight days. So we're going to have all of this going on. God communicates to us not only when, but how to celebrate these things. And that is fulfilled here in Esther. It fulfills those expectations. And so we are going to... Uh, do it in these uh, ways. You're going to um, have gladness and feasting. Gladness and feasting is going to be the center point of this. We are going to be joyful because God protected us as a people. Now, when you go to Israel today, they have experienced a, a a, a provision, a They're still here, even after the Holocaust. But you go to Israel, and there's places you go to you can't be joyful. I mean, you go to the Holocaust Museum in um, Israel, it is a sad place. It's a solemn place. And uh, and on many respects, they they hit you on just every kind of level, emotionally, um, from historical aspects to just, You have one display there. It's on display. You go into this room, and it's a completely black room. And it has one light, but it has thousands of mirrors. And each mirror represents a Hebrew child that was killed during the Holocaust. And so you go in there, and you realize there's only one light in that room. But as you look around, that light is reflected all around you. And each reflection is one child that was killed by the Nazis during the Holocaust. Okay, so you have that kind of, of powerful imagery being used, but it's all celebrating evil that was perpetrated against their people. And Perim doesn't do that. He says, no, we're not going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate the deliverance of our people. And so we find that they're going to have joy and feasting. Make sure they're going to be two days of joy and feasting when our sorrow was turned to joy. We got rest from our enemies. Do you think their life was kind of hard prior to this day? Do you think Haman was just waiting to that day to make Jewish lives hard? No, he was persecuting them all along, he just wanted to bring an end to it on this day and have a final thing so they had, he was the enemy long before this day of the 13th of Adar he was their enemy for years and so we find that here our sorrow is turning to joy so that's what we're celebrating, we're not going to commemorate the sorrow, we're going to have joyful feasting second thing we're going to see in verse 22 We're going to send presents to one another. We're going to give gifts to each other. And this is the only time. This is is one of the times in the Hebrew calendar we give gifts to one another. Now, you don't see this as part of the other celebrations, do you? Maybe a little bit in the Feast of Tabernacles, because you're supposed to invite your friends over to celebrate with you and feast with you. But this one is sending gifts to each other. You send gifts to one another uh, in celebration of this. Of, of all this provision of God. And so we, this is their season of giving gifts to each other. And then the third thing they were commanded to do during this occasion was to give gifts to the poor. You're going to give gifts to the poor. And specifically, you're, today it's related to it by sending food packages, food gifts to the poor so that everyone feasts, so that no one is, is lacking during this time. No one in Israel should be without during the Feast of Purim. During these two days, no one should be without. And so sometimes that manifests itself in different ways. It's traditionally now that you just send food to the poor, but others will practice this, that if they know somebody that is, uh, the concept of homelessness in our modern era, but, but if anyone has those kinds of basic needs of necessities, uh, basic necessities, unmet, they will meet those necessities during those two days. So uh, if you were out, didn't have electricity because you couldn't pay your electric bill, someone would pay that to make sure you had electricity for those two days. That kind of thing. Nobody should be in want during those two days anywhere in Israel is the idea. So we're going to send presents to one another, we're going to give gifts to the poor, we're going to have feasting and joy, everyone is going to be joyful on these two days to, to commemorate the wonderful provision of God to, through Queen Esther and King Ahasuerus and Mordecai. And so that comes into their calendar, still practiced today. The command in Scripture is that it should not miss any generation. And I want to read one phrase there. Okay, and that's in... Um, thank you, I'm, I'm over here in 20. I'm like, that's the near and far P part. 27, thank you. The Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them. That without fail, they would celebrate these two days. So we're going to celebrate it. We want all of our descendants to celebrate it. And we want anyone who wants to join us to celebrate it. This is kind of an evangelistic kind of thing. If you want to celebrate God's deliverance of his people, then we welcome you. And it is one of the few times that we find a, a very openness of celebration among Israelites. This is something you can celebrate with Gentiles. If they want to celebrate with you, let them celebrate it with you. Now, that's very different than the temple activities, right? Where you're going to celebrate this in the temple and only Jewish people come into it. And even, though, even then, though, some of the celebrations, if the foreigner comes in, you treat them as your own so that is included in some of those other celebrations but this very specifically says anybody that wants to celebrate this with us you're welcome to join us we welcome you to because uh, look at what happened let's talk about what happened here we talk about the fasting and the praying but let's look at who's involved in this deliverance Esther where is she she's not among her people in fact, from a from the law's perspective, um, Esther being the queen of a Gentile king is not a very good thing, right? That's not supposed to happen. But the impact of Esther on the Persian Empire by her relationship with King Hasuerus is the mechanism by which their deliverance occurs. And in fact, if you read back into the earlier things, not only did the Jews defend themselves, but friends of Jews defended the Jews. That means Persians took up the Jewish cause as well. They fought too, for the Jews' defense. So don't think that all the Persians were the only ones there. There were friends of the Jews, neighbors, co-workers. Says, it's not right to attack these people. And they took up arms with the Jews against their own people to defend them. And so the whole celebration is about God's interaction in an empire and it's very similar in scope to what you see with Joseph and Pharaoh, what you see with Daniel and not only Nebuchadnezzar but Darius, uh, what you see with Nehemiah and, and Cyrus and and these, this relationship with these Gentilian uh, kings uh, are intimate. They're intimate relationships that they have with them and the impact that it has how God uses these kings and works through them for his people. And that's really what the Feast of Purim really celebrates. And so it's, it's broader than just the events of this. Now certainly uh, in their modern celebration of Purim, they read the Book of Esther. There's a public reading of the Book of Esther as part of their celebration everywhere you go um, in Israel and the synagogues here. It is part of it, and it's but it's a very boisterous reading of the Book of Esther. There's lots of cheering. There's lots of booing. There, there, it's very interactive. Um, you guys would do fail because you would not be interactive enough. All right. Uh, in fact, it, it is supposed to be so boisterous that you never hear the word, the name Haman. because you'll never hear it. They'll read it, they'll say it, but you'll never hear it because everyone's supposed to boo and yell and hiss so that you can't even hear the reader read the name Haman. That's and then you're cheering and, and it's just it's a very interactive reading. If you ever get a chance to hear and participate in that, it's, it's kind of exciting to watch. And to listen in on and try to replicate. Uh, but the reading of the whole book of Esther, the whole account, and to realize that there are heroes and villains among the Gentile people. And not, Jews aren't the only good people in this story. They're not the only people who are going to do right. And this is important in the national psyche of the Israelite nation, is to realize there are friends of israel out there among the nations and that promise of god to abraham was any nation that blesses you i will bless any nation that curses you i will curse and so from the very onset of them as a people they have that promise of god that there will be nations that will be your benefactors and i will bless them and technically Babylon was a blessing to Israel or Judah even as they conquered her. How's that? Well, God used them to judge him, them. He used Babylon to judge Israel. And judgment is just as much God's work upon you as him enriching you. Um, Whom the Lord loves, he chases and disciplines every son, the New Testament says, right? Right? So the judgment of God is his chastening, his discipline. And do you know that after 70 years in captivity, Israel has a complete distaste for the foreign gods of the Canaanites? That's who they were whoring after in worship, right? You don't see it revived again, do you? Because the 70 years in captivity took care of that. Did it take care of every other sin? No, but they had this legalism of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They, they went in another direction, but not in the direction that they went beforehand, where they were offering up their children to Moloch and, and Ashtoreth poles and all of that. They, it purged it from them. So even that was a blessing of the captivity by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians, Medes and Persians. Um, and so, but God would bless them. Again, I believe there's a reason for that, and that's because of the impact of a guy named Jonah on Nineveh and the impact of Hezekiah on Babylon. Okay? They responded properly to God's prophetic word, and God blessed them, using them to judge his own people. Okay, And so why did Assyria get so strong? Because they responded to Jonah when Israel wouldn't. They repented, Israel didn't. God used Assyria to punish Judah, or Israel. Babylonians, they responded when Israel, when Judah didn't. God moved the heavens. He moved the sun back several degrees, right, for Hezekiah. Did Israel respond? Did Judah respond? No, but the Babylonians responded, sending a whole group to Hezekiah to say, what happened? What happened? Oh, we want to hear the story. We want to worship the God that moved the sun backwards. Israel didn't do that. Judah didn't do that. Egypt didn't do that. Babylon did that, and they were blessed and used by God to judge Israel. And so Purim is a celebration not only of Jews, but of the nations, of Gentile nations. And I think we miss out on not participating with them in it. That we are part of this, we are part of God's solution to the Israelite dilemma. Whether it be a necessity of judgment or a necessity of of, of protection and deliverance, the nations have a side to pick. And we, as members of the nations in in Jewish eyes, want to pick their side. We want to pick their, they're the people of God. Do they do everything perfect? No. But that doesn't diminish the fact of who they are. And we are their friends. And so celebrating Prima isn't just celebrating God delivering Jews. It's God using King Ahasuerus and all these friends of the Jews that defended and fought with them and protected them and celebrated Purim with them. And so we have a a valid place there at that celebration to do that. And so that comes up, um, uh, it was in February this year, I believe next year it's in March. I think it's like March 10th and 11th or 9th and 10th, huh? Yeah, Yeah, this year it was in February, it was early this year, uh, But I think in 2022, it'll be in in the first week of March somewhere, first 10 days of March, I think, March 10th maybe. So um, we have a valid place there at that feasting table of Purim. And and it's unfortunate we don't participate in that, or at least uh, recognize it along the way in our holiday calendar. Uh, And I would really encourage you. You have a place here in the Book of Esther of those who would join them just as there was Gentile Persians that joined the Jews in defending them. And King Ahasuerus joined uh, Esther in, in celebrating the protection. And interestingly, Mordecai writes the original letter, but it was state-sanctioned by a signature by Queen Esther. So this became a Persian holiday, not just a Jewish holiday. And I think we missed the significance of that. Mordecai sends this letter out, right? He's been put into official capacity, but it's really why I read verse 29 is that it was confirmed, this second letter about Purim. She wrote with full authority. That is, as queen of Persia. I am making this. This became a Persian holiday as well as a Jewish holiday by her edict by her signing that second letter, um, saying that we should celebrate this and recognizing that this is what, how God re- responds to what? How does God respond to fasting and praying? How does God respond to fasting and praying? He responds by blessing and, and delivering. And so we have that, that uh, opportunity to celebrate God responds to fasting and praying. With joy, feasting, gifts, provision, protection. Okay, good. A good thing to add to our calendar, uh, in our church calendar, uh, to just join with God's uh, deliverance of the Jews, and to also be reminded of the purpose and place for fasting in our lives. Not to be institutionalized on a certain day necessarily. Day of Atonement an exceptional, we talked about that and we studied it, but on this to be responsive, when we have something come down we should certainly fast and pray. Um, it is foolish just to think that the book of Esther doesn't encourage that. <laughs> but most of the book is about it. Um, but it's reaction to either national or corporate group sin, personal sin, or uh, personal attacks or, or assaults on the church. We should be fasting and praying. Uh, we should have some fasting and praying in our minds as we think about what's going on in Kenya uh, and what has been happening. The church should be responding to this. We are having an all-out assault on organized church as we know it. Uh, and that should move us to fast and pray regarding that. When you hear decisions being made by governors, by presidents, by prime ministers, uh, we should be fasting and praying. How do we respond? How do we respond? And uh, uh, when I first got that word that we are not supposed to meet again as a church, um, I had to do that. I had to just take time and say, I just have to focus and ask God, how do I respond? And that's the occasions that demand fasting and praying. But we don't institutionalize those memorially. Okay, any comments, questions? Yes. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Right. The, the statement they won't hear it in the podcast. The statement was, "Well, why would anyone stick with Haman essentially when you got him hanging on the gallows with his sons, and um, and you have the king against you and all that? How? Why would you persist in that?" Um, and my biggest comment is is hate runs deep. They did have the right to attack Jews. And so if if the government says, if the government, for example, in, what is it, some, is it in California that you're allowed to go in and shoplift a, to a certain amount and not be prosecuted? It's like up to $1,000. You can go in there and just take whatever you want and not be prosecuted. So if the government says you have permission to steal... Okay, you're going to steal. If you get caught, you have to give it back, but you won't be prosecuted. That's the most that's going to happen to you. They're going to take the stuff away from you that you took. Now, if you have, if you're not allowed to use weapons, and you're not, you know, you can't resist arrest, or whatever, but you're not going to be prosecuted, if you know that. You know, but they had the legal authority to attack the Jews. Um, and the only consequence was if the Jews could defend themselves. And all I can say is they're, There were people that hated the Jews in the citadel more than out in the outlying areas. Um, Again, Mordecai was among them. And also remember that there was a group that was against the king as well. Because Mordecai exposed that. And if you got a king that's gathering up all the pretty girls in town and bringing them into his harem... You can understand why there might be a few angry people against him and, and uh, uh, Mordecai and for because Mordecai thwarted them. That whole group that wanted to overthrow the king, Mordecai was their enemy. Don't forget that political side as well. And we have the, just, just hate just runs deep sometimes. And I don't know, what is it? It says in there in the book of Ezra, wasn't it 500 that they killed that second day? It wasn't a huge number, but it was several hundred. 400, 500, something like that, it lists there. Okay? Well, that's our word of prayer. Gone a little late, but uh, I want to answer let's, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again for the opportunity to study your word and, and just to be reminded of these things that we really don't celebrate. And uh, But they are opportunities to remind ourselves of the power that uh, you have exercised for those who will humble themselves, mourn, weep, fast, pray, uh, and seek your deliverance instead of our own deliverance and trying to manage it ourselves. Lord, give us that spirit to be responsive and then to celebrate your working for us to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.